everyone. It's the Life of Gem live video podcast and audio podcast now live on Apple Podcasts. Or actually, it's not live, but the live version is archived on Apple Podcasts. But today, we have a very special guest, one of my favorite people, one of my favorite poets and writers, Angela Pena. I'm going to mess it up now. I practiced it like 25 times. Pena Redondo, the author of Nature Felt But Never Apprehended. Please go get this book if you don't have it already and look at all my little highlights. And then also author of All Things Lose Thousands of Times, the Hillier Graving Guide Prize winner by Inlandia Institute um, is the publisher. And so I'm going to read their bio and then we'll bring them in and they can read. So Angela Pena Redondo is a queer Filipinx interdisciplinary writer and educator. They are the author of Nature Felt But Never Apprehended by Naomi Press, the book All Things Lose Thousands of Times by Inlandia Institute and the winner of the Hillary, Hillary Gravendike Regional Book Prize and Maroon by Jami Publishing. That's a, a press in San Bernardino. Their work has appeared in the Academy of American Poets, in the Michigan Quarterly Review and elsewhere. They've received fellowships from so many places, but Hedgebrook, Macondo, Tin House. Hold on one second, sorry. And so welcome. I'm so overjoyed to have you on and I'm unmuting you. Hi, Angela. Hi there. <laughs> Hi, so I'm lovely so to be here. <laughs> so honored to have you. Um, people are just dropping in right now, so we're going to give them a minute, and then you're going to read. I really urge everyone, and we're going to do a giveaway at the end, to go out and buy your beautiful collection of poetry, which is, is it a year old now? It's about maybe six or seven months. Okay, so. six months old. Oh. <laughs> Still your baby, nature felt but never apprehended. And then, is this your second book, All Things Lose Thousands of Times? Or your yeah, it's my second full length. I had a chapbook before that, but that is was the first full length poetry collection. Okay, yeah. so Maroon was your first chapbook. Yes. Okay, great. And so I'm going to put the camera on you if you'd like to start a reading. And we already have some people here watching live. We have Emily Fernandez who's a big fan of you, and then my best friend, Tracy Sauce. So here you go. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm so excited and glad to be here. Um, I love Life of Gem. I love Juanita. Um, it's just such a great person. So I just want to say thank you to, to her and thank you to the folks who are dropping in and joining with us today, this evening. So I'm going to read um, uh, the very first prose poem that is um, at, in the beginning of the book. Um, but before I go into reading that, um, I do want to give a little bit of, of a background with the title um, of the book, Nature Felt But Never Apprehended, uh, because a lot of people have asked me like how I came, with that, came up with that title. And the book went through many iterations in terms of the title. But in the very back of the book, there is a little footnotes page, end notes page, which I title endlings. And the reason I do that is because they're like end notes, but they're also like journal entries. And I think um, starting off with a little journal entry about the title can open up conversation about the book. And so 
the title of this book came to me on May 27th, 2020, the month of George Floyd's murder and when Black Lives Matter LA protesters converged shortly afterward in downtown Los Angeles. As demonstrators blocked the 101 Hollywood freeway somewhere between Alameda and Aliso Street, I was a mile away with a book in hand, cross-legged atop a mountain rock. I caught a glimpse of a striped snake chasing a lizard into some shrubs. Then the all too familiar sound of helicopter blades circling above me and moving towards the city skyline. I was reading Cecilia Vicuña's poem, The Quasar. The poem's original lines are, everyone knows what poetry is, but who can say it? Its nature is to be felt, but never apprehended. And that was from Spit Temple, selected performances of Cecilia Vicuña, um, translated and edited by, by Rosa Alcala on Ugly Duckling Press. And so, um, again, I wanted to um, read that little note piece right there. So, um, so hopefully opens up a large conversation with you and also a little bit of the background of, of the, the making and the production of this book. Uh, so as I mentioned before, the very first poem I want to read is the very first poem in the book. It pieces of the poem, all of this poem also, um, uh, re reveals itself throughout in some of the text art or the text plus image art throughout the book. So I thought it would be fitting to <clears throat> read this book and um, or to read this poem first. And this poem is uh, very much about ritual. It's about the importance of ritual, the necessity of ritual and why it's also impor important to even create um, an imaginary ritual uh, that is about cleansing yourself and cleansing oneself of one's shadows of one's demons of letting go of what is no longer serving you and this piece is titled mercy ceremony i am slaying you in my dreams no slaying you for reals this time steel pointed aim like hawkbone at your bare collar your eyes tell of those one's privileged limbs that mouth that consumed everything it could because it believed it could with even knowing the immensity. What was stripped away from me is no longer an invisible assault buried under bladed tendrils of seaweed, havoc of sea grapes. There's nothing holding me back from carving as one does when whittling wood. This butterfly blade on soft tissue to etch my name on your skin. This name for ocean, its secret wind, this tender gouge, jellyfish, all cinematic haunting above flaring sea anemone. Black sounds of my birth, its unseasonable foam, you rope bound covered in lava sediment. I set your weight on a raft just made for your tied up frame. Burn guava leaves above each part stamped in volcanic ash. I hover longer over bandaged eyes, 
wrinkle genitals moisten pod now waiting to return to the undulating underbelly blow smoke into your one exposed ear so you can feel my life force one last time like intentional stars colliding as i push you as i push your raft off into what's destined to consume so the next um piece that i want to read is in the first section of the book and the first section of the book is very earth environment nature uh leaning ecologically ecologically poetic leaning writing and um this first piece is titled survivors topography like an upward buttress a guar skull and her horns calls in evidence at the walls of a catholic church skeleton is to coral of a clan is to contractual object coffers horizontal and hanging ask what signage occurs as schemata for rescue oars that lifted a boy out of floods it's plain a site of anti-colonial experience in direction of what now possesses you i pray at 2.5 meters above sea level children astral renegades reverence for labor expands with untranslated vocabulary contour through union of mountains confusion of fragmites a divine missive brown scales of flesh water is to measure for haunting what need needs not saving before birth rivulets wonderment of bones played like numerology across an eroded altar of geometry solitude and work merge offer a bed of moss and teak bark from this submersion somewhere in these militarized lands there are rivers nets there are before my birth bodies you cannot see from this excavated map made and unmade this next poem i am going to read is inspired and informed by a, a filipino made and directed film called markova and it is about the life of a filipino filipina drag queen from world war 2 philippines during the japanese occupation and um and so a lot of my work is is inspired by other forms of art also cinematic art and it just takes me into a place both imagined and also historized so this is a combination of that of that film and also my understanding of that so it is titled letter to streets that burned you dear ungiven name one who has been heard if tied by rope 
if paired with glass, if adorned in tectite. Dear sunburst of whipped black wigs, emery, emerald sari starlets at the Subaki nightclub on the corner of Mabini Street. Dear Manila at dawn, ask the soldiers why they imprisoned them in barracks, now the Rizal Memorial Sports Complex. Dear golden gaze of Pasai, you know what's godlike. Sugarcane field dandies, bitter melon bakla, queens in violent eyeshadows. Dear bar girl in a fish tank, nipple fringes rage to swaying hosannas. Pinwheel earrings shine as still empty hands cup. Dear Minerva, Carmen and Sophie, barnyard death before sunlight. They cut grass on their knees, gatherers of their own hair, applaud their femme bodies, anoint them where they lay. Dear black market healer, even blindfolded, you're much more than others realize. Fingers clasping shape of infinity, but someone made you believe mouths the limit. And I'll just read one more uh, piece. And let's see, <laughs> I didn't plan what the last piece is going to be, um, but I'm just going to read uh, this one here. Uh, I don't really know what to say about this piece, but um, I'll just read it anyway, and maybe there'll be questions. Uh, but this is titled Amulet for a Changing Child. Oh, one thing I can say about this piece is um, throughout this book, I was very drawn to the letter, the epistolary. And so you will notice also in this poem, there's a lot of um, where where the writer, me, or the speaker is addressing someone as if in a letter. And uh, this last piece is titled Amulet for a Changing Child. Dear lamplight, osprey with that cry, I fear of fading uncombed forest and uncultivated grass. Who named us pygmies of the Pacific Archipelago. They've written too many cockroach epistemologies. Where's the industrial flypaper? I hope this bane has made a wild tribe whore out of my blood. Line as tactics, film satirical portrait, film barbaric camp, film the police. Proximity perversions have been historized. My people will eat your celestial placenta. We shall eat on lush leaves, molding pale meat into lump sums. Thank I you. kept on wanting to like come in and like at least snap or something, you know, <laughs> so beautifully done. Um, 
Stephanie Barbie Hammers here. She said, I love that one. All those deers being addressed. Oh, thank you, Stephanie, so much. And she said, bravo. You know, what's really interesting about the fact that you read that piece is that I really saw this idea in this book and collection of reimagining change, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you reimagine a world where atrocities don't happen? How do you reimagine a world where everyone's accepted for who they are? How do you imagine a world in which the earth is appreciated? So um, to start that off, what role does the earth play in this book? You know, you noted that the, the first part of the book is very earth centric. Um, and then if you want to talk about how that contrasts with the image of the body, right? There's for those who haven't read the book, um, go out and get a copy of nature felt, but never apprehended. Um, there's also these images. So if you also want to talk about the sculpture that you used, um, in parts of the book as well, as far as an image. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a great pack question. So I'll start with a question about the earth and, um, and I'll start by saying that uh, when I set out to write the book, there wasn't this, um, uh, you know, initial drive to write about nature, to write about the earth. I was just sort of writing and creating work. It wasn't until I um, met with my mentors my or, and writing comrades, most specifically Alison Hedgecoke, who I know was on, was in the show, but also um, Craig um, Santos Perez, who read pieces of my work and brought it to my attention that I was writing, um, you know, ecological conscious poetics, or that I was writing somehow. Um, in conversation with environmental injustice. And once they planted Mm. that seed in my mind, I kind of just opened myself up to whenever uh, nature or elements of the earth came into being. And then I started to write more intentionally um, from from that discovery. And so um, as I was doing research and thinking about that and also integrating these concepts into my work, I couldn't help but think that there was a deep relationship between um, something like environmental injustice and also gender violence. And, and, and even though sometimes those intersections or connections might seem so maybe broad or wide or conceptual, I feel there is a very much deep connection between like how the earth gets abused or gets yeah. kind of shitted on or or gets neglected or or overlooked um and and overworked and same with the body most specifically marginalized bodies more specifically femme identified bodies and so there became this kind of i just allowed myself to live in that in that space uh mm-hmm. in that intersection or that space of collision and so that's how that happened. That's how that concept and that relationship grew. And I turned a lot to um, my own personal relationship with nature, but also my relationship with nature whenever I went back home to the Philippines or when something would happen 
disastrous, you know, and I just, again, started to do research on how um, very vulnerable countries, very, um, whether they were former, formerly colonized countries, always suffered the brunt of, of ecological disaster, of, yeah. you know, um, of pollution, of climate change. And so I know this is just the tip of the iceberg, but um, I kind of just always, once that happened, then the, then the earth, I guess you could say, was always, always started to always be present while I was writing and developing and revising the book. And in terms of the images that you mentioned, that is, um, that, um, that, that comes up throughout the book, there is an image where the reader can see in many different ways, but which is the same image, which is, um, was originally a three-dimensional sculpture, um, installation stuffed, a workman suit stuffed with silica sand. It was a sculpture that I really loved that was um, created by a visual artist, a sculptor, Claudia Torres and Briz, who's also my partner. And many years ago, that sculpture was destroyed. And wow. we, the both of us always wanted to do some kind of collaboration together. And it made sense, surprisingly, to push the book further and to collaborate with them to resurrect this image, which in many ways for me became also this body that I constantly address or because I do address bodies a lot, you know, in in the book. And because originally the sculpture is also informed by survivorhood especially the survivorhood of, you know, femme-identified bodies, queer, femme-identified bodies, that I wanted to resurrect that image, tie it in with my work, and I knew that it was going to also look different. And so, yeah. yeah. and we It's, kind of it's just- very um, surreal and disembodied in some way. And now that sure. you say Alison Hedgecoke, who wrote a book that I love so very much that was up for the National Book Award, look at this blue it makes complete sense um the ecological focus of this book and you use these very so i mean your your work is so beautifully wrought and that's why i call this writing with beauty but there's all it's contrasted with the horrors of some of the stuff you're talking about but you use phrases like survivor's typography right and what does that mean when we're talking about the earth and we're contra and we're analogizing it to the body right and Mm -hmm. you know queer bodies and femme bodies and brown bodies and women of colors bodies and being a survivor myself you know I loved how complex you made it right it this is not these are not simple ideas (sighs) and how do you resurrect or how do you heal from this kind of trauma can you heal it or are we too far gone as far as the earth goes but in our own bodies we have to reclaim it, I suppose, in order to heal it, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, then that's such a huge question, like, are we healing? Mm-hmm. Can we heal? And and also um, the reclamation of healing. Um, I feel art and and story plays a huge role in that. But when I think of healing, I, I, I can't stop thinking of like grief, right? And how grief is, there's a spectrum of grief and also grief, it, it, it doesn't, it's not like there's an end of grief. It kind of just, yeah. it, there's these stages and we kind of dance with with grief and it how it moves in and out of our ex- personal experiences. And I feel healing is the same way, right? There's, there's no 
finite place. But I want to believe that, yes, we can heal. Yes, healing is happening. But at the same time, it's also... I, I don't see it like as this end point, like I'm finally healed, right? It's also this this dance that we have with with healing, um, and and where we're you know we're in very in close proximity with it, and then we're also very far from it. And I think I was perhaps not perhaps I think I was thinking about that a lot and working through that idea within myself creatively with the book. Yeah, I I felt the grief overwhelmingly at times mm -hmm. and um you know having just took a screenwriting seminar a couple months ago we talked about how many stories in tv or film form um where the incident that incites the story is a death right if you look mm -hmm. at a lot of sitcoms or dramas or someone dies or someone loses something and then the question is how do you heal that wound and in, in one of your uh, poems on page um, 31, uh, transmitter signals when in proximity to power collapse. Yeah. You say after a loved one dies, their spirit lingers for nine days. You know, um, and then at the end of it, the end of that page, you see, say sleep does not arrive because of our dead, but of love for our dad. And you separate that line there. We're going to talk about your line break within the same uh, line. You, you do some pauses, it, it feels like I would call it. And so I really felt that grief for those who have come and gone and those you have lost, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's not explicit. You're not naming I lost this person or that person. It's almost like they've lost everything, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I guess all the beauty about the beauty about poetry is, which is very different from memoir, right? Uh, memoir, you're actually saying the thing, and yeah. and you're you're going there. It's like almost you're going there. It's like a, a it's like a very direct path. And with um, with poetry or poetics or hybrid writing, there's like some. It's like there's a choreography that's taking place or, you know, it's, or, or like you are um, a choreographer of language. And so yeah. um, it, for me, it's like, there are moments where I can say, where I'll choose to say things a lot more straightforwardly or a lot more prosaic. And there are going to be moments where I'll be using language like imagery or the lyrical voice to allude to that, to imply mm -hmm. that, but it's not said directly. And so I mean, I yeah, when it comes to grief, I do feel now that I think about it, like almost like a dance choreographer where yeah. the words are doing this here and the and in this part, some of the words are doing this here. And so, yeah, there are moments where it's not as direct and there are moments where it's a lot more nonlinear, but that but I'm so glad that you're still getting the emotional, you know, the emotional message or the emotional feeling of of grief and and, and yeah. those layers, yeah. Yeah, and it's very, um, so we're gonna go to Stephanie's comp, uh, question next, but I wanted to say this, um, two things. I see our intersection so deeply because at the end of my longer memoir, I brought in poetry because I really could not talk about when my dad was sick in any other way but poetry. Mm -hmm. And then similarly in my chat book about mass incarceration, there are certain subjects, and I know Stephanie um, would wanna probably 
I would love to have her on again to talk about this, certain subjects that poetry is perfect for. Because when I talk about my client being incarcerated, I can tell you all I want. And I can tell you his name or make up a name for him in memoir, tell you what he looks like, tell you his mom was crying, he almost died in the jail. But to do it in a poem and the way that George Floyd, you talk about how George Floyd kind of inspired that incident where you're just like watching it and you're you're in that area and you're watching, you're like taking it all in. It makes sense because there's no other way to really talk about the horror, but in poetry in some way. Because mm-hmm. to make it literal and not figurative is to almost de- like take away from how horrifying it is, right? Mm-hmm. To use this matter of fact journalistic tone and try to sure. be objective and or try to, you know, you're trying to walk around privileges, whatever it is. So I just wanted to say that. I think there's something so profound in the way that you use poetry in this book. And it, it's 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 very complicated. And I want to talk about line breaks next. But first, Stephanie Barbie Hammer has a wonderful question. Uh, what a wonderful conversation. Angela, I was so interested by you saying that you were drawn to the epistolary. Can you say a little more about that? What voices, bodies, spaces, thoughts can get accessed through the epistolary? Thank you so much. And if you want to explain to our uh, people that are listening what epistolary kind of, what kind of writing that is and what it means. Sure. That's such a great question, Stephanie. And I just can't just say how, just how, I can't say, like, I just, I'm so excited for Stephanie to be here. Um <laughs> Yeah, anyways, I'm getting my words scrambled. Okay, so um, the epistolary. So for folks that don't know, um, the epistolary in, in, in very simple terms is a letter. And the letter form is, uh, is, a, is a literary form as well that can be utilized to tell a story, to write a poem, because essentially a poem is, is a story. And so, um, and so I... The reason why I use the epistolary was, or the letter in these poems, or why I wrote letter poems, was because yes, I I really truly feel like the the subject that I was writing about was very difficult, which I was also very self conscious. I was like, I'm very self conscious. I'm writing about this difficult subject matter. It's not a new thing, but I'm being very self conscious about it. And so, a way for me to kind of pull it out of me was through the letter like somehow the letter form helped me um get closer um you know emotionally also in a creative writing way get closer to the subject where Mm -hmm. I could actually address the thing um whatever thing it was and and it it started as kind of just writing exercises for me to actually just start writing. And then some of the work just really made its way into the, the finished revised versions. So when, so, so thinking about looking at the other part of Stephanie's question about the voices and bodies and spaces, yes, through, uh, through the letter writing um, form, I was able to, really addressed so many voices and bodies and whatnot. I was able to address the abstract or the, the bodiless, whether it was an imagined voice, you know, whether it was an ancestral or spectral voice. I was able to address, you know, 
the violence that I was trying to grapple with or that I was trying to be in conversation with. Um, I was also able to address like a place of, I don't want to, I don't know if fantasy is the right word, but I think the book also goes through a little bit of dystopian, like uh, maybe internal or external landscapes. And it helped me address, it helped me speak to that other part of myself that is, you know, that's not just this regular human, like that is a weirdo, that is a weird dystopian creature, (laughs) you know? And so just, yeah. So long story short, the letter helped me get in touch with all these different voices in my head, the spirits outside of my head, but also various subjects and places that I wanted to visit, but I didn't allow myself to. And that letter was a bridge into those spaces. Beautiful, beautifully said. You know, I just read a a book by another Filipina, uh, a Filipino writer, uh, Elsa Val Medano, and she talks a lot about the motherland and of going home. And her book is beautiful. You all should look her up if you haven't read Elsa. She's one of my favorite writers as well. And I, I saw that same concept here of the motherland, of going home, of rewriting, of trying to capture history and show the people that have been oppressed and suppressed, right? And subjugation. I mean, you actually use the term um, ghosts and changed objects. Um, you talk about the ancestors, but there's a lot of images of uh, subversion, reimagination, assimilation as a erasure is a term you use on page 65. So I I definitely felt the conquered versus the oppressors, the history of suppression, the ghost and changed objects is another uh, piece that you talk about that in. And so I wanna talk about your line breaks, but first talk about how you're really challenging the normative discourse in your book, right? You're not rewriting history, so to speak, but you're, you're retelling it in a way much like Alison Hedgecoke does in her book, and a, that talks a little bit about the IE and this gentrified image and is showing what it is really like in Riverside. And, and you're taking this landscape and you're p- painting it almost dystopian in some ways, desolate, oppressed, mm-hmm. barren, broken. Talk about that. Like wh- what part of this book is a reclaiming and a retelling of history, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the book, like a majority of the book, is is a reclaiming of history, and 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 I'll say reclaiming because being a you know being a first generation immigrant and and having that dislocation, you know, from you know from being someone who was you know, born and raised thoroughly in their home country, mine being the Philippines, and being fluid in the language, fluid in the culture, being able to navigate that space fluidly. I think Mm. I really wanted to also, like, incorporate, because I could not help it, my perspective and my experience as as a first-generation immigrant, as a diasporic person that is no longer there, but that has... That, that feels or that, or that has real experiences of being and feeling alienated in both places, right? And yeah. again, this is not like a, a new notion, but I think it's important for people to, or writers, people, artists, to kind of um, express and to honor their own personal experience and how they tell it. And so um, 
like what you said, it's like definitely about being in multiple worlds. So mm -hmm. there is like this reclaiming of history, but also it's it's like yes and no. It's like reclaiming right. history that is yours, but also no, it's it's it it is mine, but I'm also distanced from it. And there's also this 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 gap, but I want to get to know it. And yes, um, I'm also reimagining what history has been erased as a as a you know as a person who has a formerly colonized history, who has um, a current culture that's heavily militarized, and and so and and so there's heavily all... militarized, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, and so there's a lot of things going on, and and so. I just allowed myself to really be in all those messy plus places in history, you know, doing the work and researching, but also knowing that I wasn't going to live up to being this, 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 you know, scholar of historical accuracy. Mm. And that I also, um, at the same time, uh, resist and, and don't quite, you know, agree with historical accuracy. Um, and so, and I think that's also very much linked to also survivorhood, right? About memory yeah. and 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 the the pain of being a survivor, and that memory is is skewed. It's not always accurate, but it's also doesn't mean that it's not truth, yeah. you know. And so, yeah, I hope that answers that question. It does one hundred, and I, I I think that the issue of feeling outside, feeling in between cultures feeling like you don't belong anywhere is something that really resonates with me personally. You know, I'm a pocha. I'm half Mexican, half white. Um, pretty much never felt like I fit in anywhere until I started writing. Mm. And then despite my pocha hood, uh, many people have accepted me in Macondo and other places. And I feel very grateful for that, but I still always struggle with sure. pretending I know Spanish pretending that I'm more Latina than I, you know, my husband, even he's Argentine. He calls me white girl. Cause he's very, if you want to know a, a culture steeped in its culture, Argentinians have like this really deep connection to culture. And it's very interesting. Cause I just listened to uh, the latest episode of this American life. And it really goes to what you're saying about being first generation. There's a story in there about an Argentinian reporter that's, on NPR quite often and she goes home to Argentina to see her best friend who's like this gay boy and she always said she would you know move back for him and he said you're never gonna move back I don't call you Argentine girl anymore I call you my American friend and mm. it breaks her heart in some ways but she never went back because her grandma died and she felt like she couldn't go back but so it's really interesting to think of the concept of being first generation and wanting to be steeped in your homeland and your culture, but also you're here, right? You're a Cal State San Bernardino professor. You're very accomplished. You have three books. Um, you're well-known. You're like this, you know, icon for many people here in America. But it's really interesting because I think that maybe we never feel like we're enough, mm, you yeah, know, and yeah. you're clearly more than enough in both cultures, but um, it's, it's just very profound. And I, I appreciate how open you are about that. It's not that issue of identity is not something that's easy to talk about. I think it's super important though. And I'm second or my third, um, my mom was actually born here, but her mom was from Mexico 
But my mm-hmm. mom grew up only speaking Spanish and being heavily chastised and hit for speaking Spanish in school. And right. so for her, she didn't teach us Spanish. But yeah. I feel that loss and that grief of cult- loss of culture. I have the story I just wrote about trying to make tortillas from scratch. And it's so sad, right, that I can't make enchiladas or tortillas or tamales. And I want to, but number one, I'm not domestic. I'm just not. But I'd rather be writing. But number two, that loss and feeling like I'm not enough. I'm not Mexican enough because I can't make an effing tortilla, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it's complicated. Totally complicated. Yeah, Yeah, it's very complicated. And, and, you know, like I, I just love how we share very similar experiences, you know, Uh, similar, different, but also similar. And, you know, what you said about belonging, I think is like a a key, a key thing, because there is, oh, it always feels that there's this quest of belonging, Mm. right, of, of, of wanting to feel like you belong somewhere, Uh, even though you evolve and learn so many things, there's, it's, it's still there, this feeling to belong. And, um, and also just how, there are so many different experience of, of, uh, of an immigrant and a diasporic person. Like, I feel like the more, the more one tells their story or writes about it or creates art about it, there's always something either new or there's just something, there's just something there. I feel there's a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge and a lot of innovation that is seen through the experience and perspective of some, of someone who lives in different worlds, cultural worlds, different even gender worlds, but that has to adapt and mold and hybridize themselves to fit so many different environments. They have like these, they tap into so many different perspectives. So they have another state of consciousness that they have to be aware of. And so, I don't know, I just think there's a whole lot of knowledge and awareness there. So talk about that because this, this question just popped in my mind. Talk sure. about that within the concept of the academic space, mm. being a professor, ap- academia, the elitism of that. Um, how does how does that play a role in who you are as a writer and a poet? Do you struggle with fitting in there too? I can tell you as a lawyer, I've always struggled fitting in. You know, I, I'm not your prototypical lawyer. I just, I'm just not. So how does the elitism of academic institutions, and maybe challenging that, right? How did that play a role in where you chose to teach, where you chose to go um, after you got your degrees and all of that? Oh my God, that's such a great question. Um, it is It is a challenge. It is a huge challenge to be um, in academia, to be part mm. of that institution, especially as an artist. I, I, you know, it, it took me a long time to say, you know, I am an artist, I am a writer. And so when I finally felt that, I, when I finally took ownership of that, to have to move into a, an, into a, into the academic sphere was even more like, wait, <laughs> I just, I'm an artist here trying to perform, you know, educator and scholar. And so it is very hard, I think, and for me. And, and you know, I, I can't speak for other people, even though there are people that I've spoken with where, we're, where we come together in solidarity. But it is very difficult because I feel like you have this very complicated place where 
uh, you know, there's this promotion or this promoting of forward thinking and radical thinking and creative thinking, but we're still, you know, within a system. And so yeah. to be in a place of all these oppositions, it, it can be it can be both fuel, creative fuel, but it can also be extremely exhausting. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm more I more have a tendency, especially now, maybe because of where I am in my life and how my age is that I just get exhausted <laughs> really quickly. I just get tired. So I'm just like tired of it. But um, but I think there sometimes I mean, for me, being being an institution, there there is a lot of pressure to to perform and be a particular thing. Mm. But I, I strive really hard to remember that, you know, that I came in as a that I started and that I am a poet and an artist yeah. and a writer. And there are things in that in that experience in that body that is not you know, within the equation mm-hmm. or the formula of academia. It's just not. And um, yeah, you cannot identify as that. Because I can tell you when I tried to make my life being a public defender, it did not work because the job is thankless. And I, I love my clients and I fight hard for them. But I had to remove myself and I don't identify as a lawyer anymore. I identify as an artist and a creative. And once I let go of that expectation that I was ever going to fit in there or get the accolades or get anything. I, I was a lot happier and I just let the work speak for itself. I think it's really important that you are part of academia because I uh, write a lot about how craft is so elitist, right? As a high school dropout, as someone whose mother is a waitress, dad is a trucker, I waitressed my way for 10 years through junior college. And people think, oh, you're a lawyer. Oh, I was a waitress for most of my life and I had no money for half of my life. I took the bus to work. I really believe in that blue collar ethos. And for students to see you there, for you to tell them what voice matters, I think it's everything. Because mm. if I, I did have good professors at Mount Sac and UC Riverside. I had angels that really helped me along. Sure. But I think at, when I first started out at Chafee, I had professors call my work melodramatic, white professors, white male um, normative professors call my work melodramatic I'm like well my life is dramatic what do you want you know (laughs) you try dealing with all the crap I've dealt with and so and Isabel Quintero writes a lot about this too you know she was criticized for Gabby a girl in pieces which is my favorite YA novel for too many things happening to the narrator and that book is interestingly written in journal kind of epistolary form verse right Uh, prose and um it started out as a book in uh, verse and then it morphed to a YA novel in uh, journal form. But I just think it's really interesting that we get criticized for telling our truths, but our truths are hard to take in, but that's our truth. Like you live this, right? And I'm not yeah. saying my life is hard by any means compared to a lot of people. Everything is relative. I have clients looking at life in prison that were horribly abused their whole life and never caught a break. And I've caught many breaks, but I just Mm. think it's so important that you are there in that institution and that you are an image that kids can look at and say, I want to be them. You know, they have three books. (laughs) at Cal State San Bernardino. I think it's easy not to toot our own horn, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Oh my God. Thank you so much for saying that. Like you saying that's like, oh, it's like, you know, it's like when he does giving me like a, a, a hug, like a, a, a hug, a f- affirmation hug. So, yes, yeah. you know, you are right. Like I do support and I do advocate for 
you know, um, definitely diverse, uh, very, very diverse faculty, you know, in, in all our school systems. And, and it is important to, to be seen in that way, even yeah. though the environment is, can be at times unforgiving um, and hard. And I respect so many educators, you know, in academia or in the public schools or in all the schools that are doing any kind of, you know, anti-racist, decolonial, um, you know, um, uh, critical race kind of work. Um, but it's still hard to be there. But, you know, it is, yeah. you are right. It does make a huge difference to just be there. Um, and at times you feel like, <laughs> at times it's hard not to feel like it's a lot. To, like, mm -hmm. you know, it, that, it, that, that it, it is a lot to, to be in that space and to, and to have um, that kind of responsibility. But um, it is also really rewarding. It's it's almost like doing the kind of decolonial decolonial revolutionary work from within the system, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And you have to work within it sometimes. I would argue. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Talk I about um, two things. If you could talk about your craft uh, yeah. for the people that are listening, that are writers and poets specifically. Talk about how you figure out your line breaks. What, uh, when you do change form to more paragraph form, how you kind of um, break within the same line um, and how you decide where to do that. I know it's not uh, easy to explain sometimes. And then um, how do you uh, inspire yourself and then your publishing journey, if you don't mind talking a little bit about that? Because for me, um, as someone that took many years to find a publisher and to finish my book, my second book, um, I think it's very easy to let people dictate that what you know the form is going to be doesn't exist or you can't do it. And you just really have to believe in what you think the final outcome will be and be happy with that, whether or not it ever gets published. Because it's not real. The art, you know, David Bowie, who's my main muse in life. He did not sing because he wanted to make money or because I'm sure he made money, but he didn't do it for anything but the fact that he had to. Ziggy Stardust took a huge toll on him and almost that character almost, you know, annihilated him mm. uh, physically, emotionally, drug wise and stuff. And he couldn't mm. get that character out of his head. Right. He was a, a writer in many ways. And so, um, and I just have to say Ziggy Stardust, the the album is like a book in many ways. Right. But so talk about also about how creative people, we pay a toll. So if you could talk about the craft, how you do your line breaks, <laughs> how you inspire yourself, your publishing journey, and then end with, and then we're going to end with the reading too and a giveaway, and then end with um, the price you pay being a creative, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Juanita, that's like a <laughs> blast of like... Yeah brilliant but intense questions so let me see if I can say that response to the questions maybe in order maybe not so so in order yes. um in terms of craft oh my gosh craft is you know it's this thing that is never ending right that for for a writer for a poet for any artist that you know you just have to kind of do it um I I you know for me like you know in the my experience it's hard for me to always to carve out time to write. I mean, it took such a long time mm. to get this book published. There's been so much years in between because I'm just so busy working that I don't have the privilege to just write. And writing doesn't always come easy to me. I'm like heavily formulating, I'm thinking, I'm brewing, I'm stewing in my own shit, you know, my own stuff, 
you know, and, you and so it's very, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so it's really hard. But, um, but in terms of craft, sometimes I just have to put aside craft books. Mm. And I have to just look at um, other writers who are really informing my work, who I feel their aesthetic, their subject matter, um, their, you know, their approaches are very aligned with mine. And I study their work. Yeah. I look at them, I study their work, you know, I'm not trying to reinvent any kind of wheel. I'm, you know, this is a way in which I'm trying to educate or continually educate myself, and how I want to inform, you know, my, my new work and how this work was informed. Um, you know, again, like Alison Hedgecoke and Craig Santos Perez were folks that brought it to my attention that was that I was writing about um, ecology and environmental injustice. So I am looking at the works of others. I keep the works of others close. Um, and, and, and I want to be very good hint, study the writers you love, right? <laughs> yes, Figure out yeah. how they did it. Sure. And be in conversation with them. There are so many writers who I respect that I am in conversation with, whether it's like on this podcast or I'm doing a reading with or a panel with or something like that. Like I, I, they really inform me. And so mm. I am, I, I learn a lot from those interactions in terms of craft and um, for my line breaks, um, I would say with line breaks, there are so right. There are so many ways that you can approach a line break or where to do a line break. And so there's not one way that I am approaching line break. I'm thinking there are some poems I'm thinking about the sonics, and and where I want the pause to be, or where mm. I want to mark a shift. There are some pieces where I'm not really thinking about San. I'm really looking at the aesthetic of how the poem looks on the page in relation to what it is that I'm trying to capture, the, the subject matter that I'm working in. So I'm not thinking That's about really how it sounds. That's interesting because I, I had a question that I had to skip about the aesthetic. And I had a feeling that your line breaks did have a lot to do with that, right? How does it look on the page? Sure. Like you said, to what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, yeah. How does it look on the page? And of course, I'm not just saying, okay, this looks great. But I'm like, okay, what is this poem in conversation? I'm having these conversations with myself. Like, yeah. what is about, what is the emotional landscape? What is the emotional pitch? And what line break can, what line breaks can best, like, communicate that? And so, um, you know, I'm thinking about that with line breaks. Um, and, and so... Th th those are the things that I'm thinking about um, when I'm considering line breaks. Um, and and so hopefully that answers your question. It did. Um, and then if you could end with how you, your publishing journey, if you want to focus on one of the books, the hardest thing or how you got started and had your first chapbook published by Jami Publishing, or is it Jamie? I think it's Jami. Um, and that's um, the press of um, Nakia Cheney, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'll just say that, well, uh, publishing is very difficult, uh, I think, and it's a challenge. And when it does happen, it's like, yay, um, <laughs> great. And, you know, sometimes it's more work because if you're working with an independent publisher, um, even though they're wonderful to work with and you can have a much more closer, more closer, like personal relationship, it's still, there's a lot of legwork that the, that the author does. And so, my introduction to publishing was through independent small presses uh, with, you know, presses that I really, really admire. 
And so, um, and with Jammy, with Inlandia, uh, which I won a prize for, which is lovely. And then um, uh, um, <laughs> Noemi Press. Oh my God, I don't know why I blanked yeah, out there. Yeah. Noemi Press. And so I was lucky that um, the editors of Noemi Press were following my work since All Things Lose Thousands of Times. Oh, wow. And so um, they were just following my work. They supported my work. And there was always moments when one of the editors, Diana Artoon, would say, when are you coming up with a new book? Do you have a manuscript out? Is it there? Are you ready? And so, like, I was, in that way, I was kind of lucky that the first book gained or had some kind of something and that um, and that um, Noemi approached me. But even when that happened, I was still negotiating, like, where do I want to go? But I did mm. decide to go with Noemi. Not only are they, like, a really... Um, beautiful press really smart press and and also really um and they're made of writers like many small presses but they also publish work uh, uh they publish books that are very similar to my work like hybrid experimental um kind of polyphonic interdisciplinary work mm. and i had the opportunity to work with the editors closely so anytime i have and well, I would say anytime that any writer has an opportunity to work with editors, I think it's just a really good idea because you don't get to work with somebody that closely. And so um, that's how I came about to working with Noemi Press. And so, um, but yeah, I, I mean, but when it comes to publication histories or journeys, there's never just one way. Like I wish yeah. I could be like, let's get an agent. And maybe that might happen in the future. Probably, maybe not. But if you can get an agent, wonderful. But other than that, I sort of have just kind of continued to accept that my relationship with the publication word is just going to be kind of rogue, kind yeah. of, you know, kind of rogue. And, 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 um, in all, all the, the best writers do that, right? I mean, <laughs> James Joyce was with the small press, Sandra Cisneros. Sure. A lot of very well-known books started out with independent or small presses. Yes. And there's a reason for that. Your work is very, very just complicated and beautiful. And I, I just think that the small press is the way to go because it just seems like the editing is so important and the sure, sense absolutely. of them keeping your voice, right? Yes, yes, yes. And that, and, and thank you for saying that. That is one of the big bonuses of, of working with, a, a, you know, an independent press is exactly that. And um, their, you know, their mission or their goal to really honor the authenticity of your voice and your aesthetic. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to um, let everyone know, whoever shares this, I'm going to put you in a drawing for the amazing book. Please go out and buy it. Naomi Press. Um, you can also get it on Angela's website, obviously, but it's called Nature Felt But Never Apprehended. Please, those are who are tuning in later to watch this vodcast, please share it. Those who share the vodcast. <laughs> on their pages will be entered into a drawing and I'll mail that out. I'll give a couple days for shares and then I'll mail it out next week. Um, so if, could you please end with a reading and if you could read uh, goth girl, hello, the vampire program <laughs> oh. poem from all things lose thousands of times, the Hillary Gra Graven Dyke prize, 2015, the regional winner 
for Inlandia. And that is a, you know, I serve on the Inlandia board. I have to give cool. that, um, I have to tell people that because I, you yes. know, it's not a conflict for that. It's, you know, I don't want to seem biased, but it's a very prestigious and a very competitive prize. Um, and so congratulations on that. And I'm so glad that Inlandia, which is the premier um, Southern California Inland Empire Literary Organization of Publishing and Workshopping and other endeavors, uh, put this out because it's such, there's a different voice here. Um, I definitely see the evolution and the uh, maturing, but there's something so beautiful and nostalgic about some of these poems. I just love them so much. I loved uh, the poem Vampire in a Bad City and the poem, um, how do you say that, Abad Cassette? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, those two poems just really spoke to me. All of them spoke to me, but I was just kind of obsessed with this book in a way because I read this one first is what's interesting that I saw the contrast. I think if I had read this one first, then this one, I might not have saw the contrast so much. Mm. And then I was like, wow, this, I just love reading an earlier work. Because cool. it's almost like your first album kind of thing. Yeah, There's a I rawness love and a beauty to someone's early work um, where you can just learn so much about the creative, right? So if you could end with read whatever you want, but if you could read the vampire poem. Sure. I yes. Um, I definitely will read the vampire poem. And um, and I think just one, right? Uh, okay. Um Oh, read us, read two or three if you want. Oh, uh, we okay. got about five minutes, and then we'll oh, say our goodbyes awesome. and all that. Okay. okay, sounds good. So I'm gonna read Vampire in a Bad City, and you know I'm just gonna give a little bit of background about this um, this piece from All Things Lose Thousands of Times. This is actually also inspired by a film, um, and uh, it was it's inspired by an by an a black and white. Uh, um, independent sort of art house film where the main character is a vampire and is a woman vampire and is also a Muslim vampire. And so it was just really, when I saw the film, uh, which was, I believe it's called Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I love the film and the director many years ago. And that film inspired me to write Vampire in a Bad City because I'm also like into vampires and all these creatures of the night. And so here we go, Vampire in a Bad City. Secrets can be taken apart like little screws from a dead clock. She doubts the ancients, rebukes God-given things, their quick, unnatural handling of power. Even now, her resistance of the invasions and their talents. Those old furnaces, houses like lines of jars, fumes bottled for safekeeping. Tell me, what is even worth keeping. Without necessity to run, she occupies corners elsewhere, ascending not to sainthood, but to a being that finally rewards failure with gifts. Through her, truth is not a scab, but a veil, laceless, unfurling itself into a black wave. And I will read one other book from uh, from this earlier work, and I'm also going to read um, one of Juanita's um, favorite poems because I just think it's just such an honor to have someone say that they have a favorite poem in one of your earlier books. And this one is Obad Cassette, and um, I would say 
for writers that are here, we're all familiar with the Obad, which is kind of, I believe, right, that song, it's uh, that sort of song or that incantation um, in the morning after sort of situation. Uh, when in, in almost like this parting, you know, this parting morning after sort of vibe. And so, Obad cassette. I sew together pieces with string from 77 poems. The white page widely open, Lacerda says. Nakedness is more and more terrible. Each diagonal of loss is measured. A running field, a perimeter of mouth. Each crawl to rumpled sleep. But to loss, darling, I prefer talk until the flags and meat burn. I replay it in my head like Hikmet's smoldering red chimneys of Istanbul and bars of Bursa. And yes, surprise, even women betray each other for contour, for beauty, for burn again. But the disorderly placement of hands, the barrier made from the vertical of cigarette against chin meant a di diagram of secrets. And I'm tired of the startling, the clear plane of desertion. And gosh, I don't know if I should end with a poem from this, from this book or uh, the new book. Um, I think I will, something is, is kind of, I'm going to end with a poem still from the old book. And just because list poems are so fun for writers, so it's just great when you can create lists. And being a Capricorn, <laughs> I need lists to survive. I just need lists, even if it's a list of imaginary things to keep me sane. And so this is another poem that was actually also inspired by films, but also the concept of like, you know, those drag races when, um, like in James Dean movies, when there's a, a drag race. And so, but also that this idea of just recklessness and abandon. And so, um, and this poem was also published many years ago as a broadside. And um, anyways, it's titled Advice for Tumbling Out of a Racing Car. One, give an offering of smoke to the clavicle the double-sided arrow of the body, it will tell you which way to swerve. Two, choose a thunderbird for its three red eyes. Three, attack like a hawk or guinea fowl, your opponent only dove. Four, before flight, be prepared to roll the torso into an isopod. Five, Tuck chin into chest. You will not swallow dirt. Swallow yourself. Six. You're a stunt woman. Codename Elastique Sauvage. Seven. Beauty. Not an option. Eight. Remember the heart is a miniature bombardier. Nine. Do not mistake your legs for bayonets. Use them as catapults. 10. You must and shall be an expert in hinging. 11. 
Blood will be the first and last thing you see. 12. In this game of chicken, heaven comes after collision. And thank you so much, Emily Woo! Fernandez, for all those really sweet comments about um, this poem. Thank you for being here. That last poem was for you. That is an epic poem, and I'm so glad I got to hear you perform it because it feels different red. And in the skin of chicken, heaven comes after collision. <laughs> I'm going to have to use that quote somewhere. Yeah. Um, I don't give you credit, but it's so epic. Such a beautifully wrought list poem, and that is Emily Fernandez's favorite poem. And I have to shout out, um, speaking of Miss Emily Fernandez, she is coming on the podcast next. Um, she will be on the podcast Yay. just to give her a shout out. And I'm double checking the date so I get it right. Um, I believe she'll be on in two weeks, I think. Um, today is September 20th. I believe she's coming on October 10th, um, October 11th. I, yeah, October 11th, 7 p.m. That's a Wednesday, same bat channel, same bat time, Pacific Great. time on the Life of Jam video podcast. Please come hear Emily's work. It's amazing. She has a book out with Bamboo Dart. Go to Bamboo Dart Press to find it. And then please go to Naomi Publishing and buy this book, Nature Felt But Never Apprehended. And tell us where people can find you, where they can find all your work. I put your website in the chat, but if you could give people your website for the people that are listening and not watching. Sure. Um, my website is just my full, very long name, which is Angela Penaredondo.com. Uh, but I also have a link tree. But the easiest way to find me, I would say if you're not, you know, finding me on my website or Googling me is to find me on Instagram, which I also have a really long name, annoying. But um Finding me on Instagram will also direct you to um, my link tree where you don't have to go on the website. You could just see all the little things there. And my um, uh, Instagram handle is uh, domain Denarwal. So just think domain, like domain, like, like a domain of a website or whatever, D-O-M-A-I-N-E. And then D, it's French or whatever. And then Narwhal, like the, um, the fish thing with the, with the, the horned fish. Um, like the unicorn fish. And so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie, for being here. Wow. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. People who are listening and watching specifically the podcast, you can win a book. If you share this, I'll put you in a drawing. I'll send that out next week and notify the winner. I always choose someone. And then um, please, if you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, go to Angela's website, get her books. And check out her work. You can also obviously go to the Cal State San Bernardino website. Look her up as a professor. And I'm sure they have links there too. So thank you so much. It's been thank such you. an honor. I'm going to send you a Life of Jam cup. Oh and, uh, my gosh, I'm so excited. Thank you. I love that. Thank you so much yeah, for inviting me to be here long. and to be in conversation with you. Um, it was just so great. Thank you so much for supporting my book and for the folks that came here. I had so much fun. You had such great questions. Oh. Well, I, you're so humble and, um, you know, you've been such a supporter of me. You, you know, invited me to a couple of events to read with you and it's been such an honor. And I really felt like I got to know you even better, even though we did hang out one night and have, you know, a, a beer or two. after yeah. that. So I, I, I felt like we were friends already, yes. but I just, I just, I feel this super 
good connection with you. And I'm so glad you're part of San Bernardino's, you know, college system. And I'm so appreciative of your beautifully crafted work. It's so brilliant and beautiful. And I'm not just blowing smoke. I don't do that. I really do believe that. I only have on writers that I really believe in. And everything I say is true. I do this podcast because I get to know my favorite writers and I can banger all over them, you know, and, and it's okay. Cause I'm a writer too. And you know, it's okay. Um, I've been, I've just been so honored to have you on. So thank you. Thank you. And we're both wearing orange. So yay. I noticed that. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So everyone get her book, come back on October 11th to hear Emily Fernandez read from her yes. book and uh, yeah, I'll interview her that day. And, um, Thank you for watching. Let's give everyone a wave out. Bye, everyone. Have a good night. Have a good night. Bye.